coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. That program is what right now is kind of what we're focused on, uh, most proud of. Uh, there's all kinds of things going on around that, right? Like the precision management, we've done a bunch of research on the on the lower Henry's Fork and looking at, you know, what how to optimize flows there to protect not only the lower Henry's Fork, but protect Island Park Reservoir and the ranch. That was a whole PhD project. We've also done a PhD project above Island Park Reservoir uh, coming from Big Springs, which is the, the large spring that supplies most of the water to the Henry's Fork coming off the that Yellowstone country. That was Brandon Hoffner describing the most important work ongoing in the South Fork of the Snake. Find out who's keeping the water flowing in the Henry's Fork, plus a chance to win an all-expenses-paid trip to this area, and some trout fishing today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thank you for stopping by the show. We are giving away a huge trip right now. It just went live. This is the trout giveaway. This is the Euro School giveaway, the Euro Nymphing School. We're heading to the Henry's Fork, the South Fork, the Snake, and any of the other rivers that are in between. And uh, we are being guided by some of the best Euro Nymphers out there. And uh, this is just going to be an amazing trip. You're going to join me on this adventure. Uh, we're going to have a private cabin. We're going to have an amazing chef. Uh, we got it all going here. So if you want to get involved in this, you can check in right now. Enter the giveaway, wetflyswing.com slash giveaway right now for a chance to win. If you want to just go ahead and just buy one of the six slots we have available for this one, you can send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com. But you might as well enter the giveaway uh, as well because if you win, we would reimburse you for anything you paid up front. Hope to see you on the river and excited about this trip and the uh, the big Euro Nymphing School giveaway. Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing, from the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between. Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com slash Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to Eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. Bren Hoffner is here to take us into one of the conservation groups leading the way on the Henry's Fork, South Fork and Snake in this amazing part of the country. We find out why water use is the number one topic Brandon is focusing on in his work. We uh, discover which species they are also focusing on in some of these famous rivers in this part of the world. And also uh, we, we get a little glimpse into how they are working and uh, around these water rights and some of the big issues around water, which is always a very interesting topic, sometimes contentious. So Brandon sheds some really good light, has a good perspective on this. Okay, let's jump into this one and dig into the YCT and find out what keeps the foundation going strong. Here we go. Brandon Hoffner from Henry's Fork Foundation.org. How you doing, Brandon? I'm doing great, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming on here and chatting about the uh, the good stuff you guys have going out at the Henry's Fork Foundation. Uh, we're going to talk about this. We've got a big trip we're doing. We're doing a big giveaway this week, and we got a big trip coming up later in the year. And it's just a cool place. The Henry's Fork is one of those names, you know, like we've had a number of episodes with guests. I think we just had 
we just had Craig Matthews on recently, and and he was talking about it. Obviously, the guy with the one percent for the planet, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems like it's a hot spot. How does it feel for you when you're sitting where you are? Does it feel like you're in like kind of a mecca of fly fishing and and in conservation too, because that's where you are. Most definitely. Um, you know, the history here, the names associated, the books written about the Henry's Fork, you know, back into the sixties the and, and then on from there and to current day. Uh, most definitely it feels like a hotbed. It feels like Mecca, it, you know, it's a, it puts a microscope on our work, no doubt too. So um, we see, you know, a lot of faces come through and celebrities and, but it, in the fly fishing world, it's pretty cool. And people do know, as you travel around, people do know about the Henry's Fork, even if they've never been here. Yeah, they do. And, and we're going to discuss some of the work you guys have going. And it's not just, I mean, you have the Henry's Fork, which is the name you hear, but also like the South Fork of the Snake, right? Which is another big name you hear about. Why Why do you think, you know, you guys are the Henry's Fork. Why not the South Fork of the Snake? Is there another group kind of in that area? Or, you know, why is it the Henry's Fork uh, Foundation? Yeah, I mean, that, go, that goes back to our history. Um, there was a lot of concern about the Henry's Fork in the early 80s whether it was, there were some changes in management at Harriman State Park. For folks that are familiar with the Henry's Fork, mostly uh, the focus is the ranch. Harriman State Park uh, was the Harriman family's ranch uh, up through the the 60s, and they gifted it to the state of Idaho. That is the piece of water, you know, the, the dry fly fishing PhD that everybody knows about, and that's what they focus on. Although the rest of the Henry's Fork is is very productive and fabulous as well. Um, if people haven't been here and they've been reading about it, normally they're reading about that ranch section. And so there was some changing and grazing practices as the transition from a private ranch to a state entity uh, managed piece of property. And so we had some you know, degradation of the banks. And so we had fencing projects. Uh, there was a, a proposal from folks that ran a power company to dam Mesa Falls and flood part of that that stretch of water. Um, there was all these threats at that time that the Henry's Fork Foundation was established to address. And, and so that's, you know, for many, many years, that's what we looked at. Um, but information evolves. And so our roles evolved as we've learned more about uh, the processes here on the Henry's Fork, whether it has to do with water quantity or water quality, you know, the funny thing is we work with Idaho Fishing Game and we will go out electrofishing and, and help them with, you know, indexes of, of rainbow trout populations and so forth. But all, most of our work is about water and it's water quantity and water quality. And uh, the fish population kind of, if we provide that habitat, you know, good quality habitat, uh, they'll be there. And so, and then we'll see that in that work that Idaho Fishing Game does through their uh, indexes and so forth. So the growth into the South Fork Initiative really came about because you can't manage Island Park Reservoir, which is, we'll end up talking a bunch about in this podcast. It really drives the health of the fishery here on the Henry's Fork, but you can't manage Island Park Reservoir in a vacuum. It's part of an upper snake reservoir system. And so having, you know, some, the influence of being on the South Fork definitely helps the Henry's Fork as well. Not to mention there was a group of people down there that saw our work, you know, the science, uh, the peer reviewed papers, the collaborative processes, the dedication to the Henry's Fork, and they said, "Hey, we would we would love to have you help us with that." So we have a committee down there that's working with us, and the nature of the work is a little different, but yet it is is providing both a benefit to the the South Fork, but definitely to the Henry's Fork as well. It gives us just a different uh, different ability to work with partners when it comes to water managers. Those water managers looking at a bigger you know a bigger system than just the Henry's Fork. 
Gotcha. Yeah. So it's more than just the Henry's Fork. And maybe you can describe that a little bit, just the take us to, you know, not only your area, but talk about make the connection because the Henry's Fork is a trib to the South Fork of the Snake, right? And, and describe that. Like, what is your area? And then describe the bigger picture for people that haven't been there, don't know what it looks like on a map. You know, if you start in this eastern Idaho, in this kind of northeast portion of, of eastern Idaho, you've got the caldera. It's a volcanic caldera coming off the Yellowstone, um, you know, Yellowstone National Park and the Madison Plateau. So all this volcanic activity. And so the Henry's Fork is really a spring-driven system. Of course, at some point, you know, big snow melt events will, will impact it in some way. But overall, you can think of it as groundwater-dominated, spring-dominated system. Well, as you start to move south towards the Tetons, you hit Fall River and you start to see the, you know, a little more, it's still spring dominated and, and groundwater dominated, but Fall River as a tribute to the Henry's Fork has a little more impact from, you know, snow melt in the spring, as far as the hydrology of that system. Well, then you move, you know, a little further south in the Tetons and you hit the Teton River, another tributary of the Henry's Fork. These rivers I mentioned are also great fisheries, you know, for themselves, but yet the, the Teton ends up being even more flashy, right? That snow melt off the Tetons. Now there's, there's still actually a spring component down there and a groundwater component based on the hydrology and geology of, of the Teton basin and so forth, but it is definitely more snow melt driven. By the time you get to the South Fork, now you've switched kind of where it's there, there is some spring, you know, uh, fed and groundwater influence coming out of Yellowstone National Park. But by and large, it is a snowmelt-driven system and a much flashier hydrology on the South Fork. So now it curls around and heads back north and, and meets up with the Henry's Fork uh, near Idaho Falls. And it's also a much larger system. But And then after they, they combine uh, their forces, they head downstream through the Snake River Plain. And you hit American Falls Reservoir, which you can see on Google Earth, you know, this extremely large impoundment. But in Southern Idaho, where we're we are here, you know, you've heard of the Idaho potatoes. Well, this is one of the largest irrigated agricultural systems in the entire world. And it's a massive industry and a massive part of Idaho's economy. And so there is a whole system of reservoirs on the Henry's Fork and the, the South Fork that contribute to being able to produce all of this food and uh, irrigated agriculture that goes along with it that started in the, the late 1800s. And so yeah, it gets very complex with water rights and the policies that go around that. But And that's kind of what I was saying, where the Island Park Reservoir, which is on the Henry's Fork, it's the, the oldest impoundment on the Henry's Fork, I believe, or it's it's the oldest one for water storage, I think. Or maybe actually Henry's Lake is the oldest. They just increase the size of a lake. But you know, these are fairly old impoundments. They've been there a while, since the last 30s. Yeah, when water rights began, or right, they were there. They've They've had their water rights for a while. Yeah, and, and unlike some of the impoundments on the on the South Fork or the Main Snake, you know the Henry's Fork. Um, even though there's a management role for the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, you know it it has a different set of mandates because of the way it started as a private impoundment, and uh, yeah, it just has some different. It doesn't have the same fish and wildlife mandates and the law behind it that say some of the other uh, federal facilities you'll see across the West have. So it, it is really about irrigation storage. It's, you know, it doesn't even really have a flood control mandate, to be honest with you. And part of that is due to the hydrology, but part of it's due to the way that it was started. So, um, yeah, it's just a different, a little bit different animal as far as reservoirs. It's also important to understand it's a big, uh, 
it's not a deep V reservoir. Like you see in a lot of reservoirs in the West where you get this, you know, huge amount of super cold water coming out of a deep reservoir. This is a big flat. Oh, wow. Shallow. Yeah. Fairly shallow. Well, you know, the, there is a part that's a little deeper, but the whole West end of the reservoir, we're talking like 6,000 acres is fairly shallow. And that, that contributes to some challenges when it comes to water quality and, and so forth. Right. 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 Gosh. So basically sounds like water quality is the number one thing and probably to a, you know, a certain extent, just the dams historically, right? Because you could look at, I mean, when you think South Fork snake, you think, yeah, you hear the snake, but you don't probably think as much, but yeah, it flows down eventually into Hell's Canyon, right? And then into where there's more dams. And then how much is that a part of your thing thinking about like the dams versus the water? Or is it the water? That's just really the main thing that you focus on these days. Yeah. I mean, we, we definitely think about the dams, but not in the way that a lot of groups would. Yeah. Like you're not actively like we need to remove all these dams. You're more focused on like water quality, water quantity. Exactly. We're looking for those win-win situations in between the water managers, the egg producers and, you know, the health of the fishery. We're trying to figure that out. And in fact, you know, while Island Park Reservoir can be a difficult, you know, issue for the Henry's Fork, it also provide some of the productivity that you experience on the Henry's Fork too, right? It has some positive benefits as well. And, you know, and then if you go to the South Fork and look at Palisades Dam, that definitely provides some, you know, that is more that deep V, you know, reservoir. And so, you know, consistent cold water. Tailwater stuff. Yeah. And then you kind of get that effect down there. And so, and honestly, the collaborative nature of our work, um, we don't see, there's not really a great benefit to be had by dam removal. And it just, we want to work with our partners here. There is this, you know, $10 billion ag economy in Southern Idaho. We want to work with them to figure out how to make sure we have the most robust and healthy fishery within that, that we can. And that's kind of how the space we work in. Yeah. That's a good, a good take on it basically. Yeah. That's one of those things, right? You definitely want to work together because it's, there's a better chance of getting some good stuff done if everybody's at the table, as opposed to people aren't at the table. Right. Um, most definitely. And, and when I first started here, there was a lot of talk about, well, let's start the lawsuits up. Right. And, yeah. And, you know, we, it's okay. Okay. Go talk to some groups that want to do that. We're not going to be that group. And here's why. And really it was not only would it not, you know, be productive, it would cost hundreds of millions of dollars and, and the water rights are tied in the, up in the Idaho constitution. I mean, this stuff is in a state water plan and these very, there's just, we're not going to necessarily change any of that. What we can change and what we can do is bring really good data to the table and ask for reasonable things and have influence because we're a trustworthy partner and our information is good. And we can ask for things that make sense and don't, uh, it turns out a lot of it ends up being mutually beneficial. It just needs to be, we need the information there to show how it's mutually beneficial. And that takes, that takes an investment that takes time and effort and that takes an investment that our luckily our, our members have been willing to make up to this point. Gotcha. Nice. We'll talk about some of the, you mentioned the South Fork initiative, maybe give us a, a highlight on a few of the things that you're, you're all spending your time on that are, you know, some things people can kind of get a little insight on what you're doing out there. Yeah. So one of the things is looking at uh, tributary restoration. That's probably our, one of our biggest focuses right now. And so Rainy Creek is a tributary of the, uh, of the South Fork uh, in Swan Valley, Idaho. And, and did actually the Rainy Creek itself has tributaries as well uh, that are most of those tributaries are spring fed tributaries. They're in the Valley floor. And so we've been working on just, 
you know, it's suffered previously from solar loading, you know, warm water temperatures. So we've, you know, worked on narrowing that stream up, uh, making it a little bit deeper, but you're talking like eight miles. There's still some water management issues. So, so we're just now launching into multiple phases on Rainy Creek itself and some of the tributaries are, uh, such as Third Creek, trying to make sure that we have, you know, the best habitat conditions available for Yellowstone cutthroat trout that are going to run up there to spawn. And so, and we do that in conjunction with, you know, the U.S. Forest Service, uh, Idaho Fish and Game, private landowners, even one of those, you know, a piece of the land was developed and it now has condominiums around it. But luckily that that piece of Rainy Creek looks a lot better than it ever did you know, when it was in pasture, to be honest with you. It's, it's a much better trout habitat than it was at one time. So, you know, just just now starting to, we kind of were opportunistic when we started that. Where could we work? Who could we work with? And and getting it rolling. And now we're getting a little more, yeah, a little more strategic about how we're doing and building an overall plan for Rainy Creek. So that's a, that's a big part of it. But then, um, you know, we're doing macroinvertebrate monitoring on the South Fork, you know, just building that baseline knowledge. What are the insect populations there look like? And how are they changing over time? Uh, we find that to be very complementary to a lot of the kind of physical water quality monitoring, which is also something we're now doing on the South Fork and wasn't there before. Um, you know, looking, we've got three different stations where we're looking at water quality parameters, dissolved oxygen, temperature, and so on, and just trying to get out ahead of any problems that might ever develop there, uh, understand the system better. And, you know, at some point here in the future, we hope to to build things like, you know, sediment load uh, graphs and so forth, you know, understanding how, how that system's working and functioning and where the problems might be. So those are the main things we're working on right now. Right on. So for species, you mentioned Yellowstone cutthroat. What are the main species you're focused on there when you think of like just kind of the fish? And I, it probably about, it focuses on like the fishing, right? But there's probably some other species maybe that people aren't fishing for as much. You know, of course, there is an issue on the South Fork as a as a stronghold of the Yellowstone cutthroat trout, and then rainbow trout moving in to the South Fork and their population increasing and interbreeding with Yellowstone cutthroat trout. Oh, right. So Idaho Fishing Game is working on that. They've been working on that issue for a long time, you know looking at flows and, uh, you know, spring flows to try and flush rainbows um, and allow YCT to compete at a, a better level. The brown trout population is growing there as well. Of course, mountain whitefish and, and many others. Our work ends up focusing on those, you know, sport related species, but in the end, it end, you know, it ends up helping out, you know, multiple species and, and uh, you know, honestly, the health of the entire river, that would be usually is the the end result of you know better water quality more water those things gotcha so you don't have to focus on you don't necessarily have to say hey these are this project we're doing is for yellowstone cutthroat you can just say like you said earlier it's water quality and it's going to help everything and and let it um you know there's probably going to be some natural variation right within those populations even though there are invasive species out there you know in, in the tributaries there's definitely a focus by Idaho fish and game to make that a Yellowstone cutthroat trout um, area. And that's that's kind of what we're seeing. The tributaries, they've been successful at keeping those, many of the tributaries as YCT strongholds um, in the main river. How do they do that? How would you keep the tributaries? Or is this because there's dams restrict them? How do you keep the trib strongholds and not 
let the rainbow again there. They use um, electronic electrified weirs. Oh wow! And they're able to to capture the fish then, Amazing. and they remove the rainbows and then pass those Yellowstone cutthroat trout upstream. And they've had pretty good success with that with their electrified weir system. So uh, it works a lot, you know, just like electro fishing and and so forth. So it, it does work. But yeah, in the in the main river, um, yeah, the different things that we've tried in the past, they've tried to have anglers keep rainbow trout to suppress the population. I think it's fairly well agreed now that, you know, unless there was some huge effort beyond what anyone's ever thought about, we're not getting rid of rainbow trout in the South Fork. There's always going to be some level of that population there. The, the problem has been is that it's just been constantly increasing to the point where it is very easy to see where YCT, you know, cease to exist in the main fork of the, of the South Fork. So um, they're trying to help them along with these programs, you know, angler take, which didn't really work. They put a bounty on them. You know, there's been some that's helped a little bit, but not enough, not to levels that are necessary. We tried uh, spring to spring flushing flows and we could never get it to the magnitude it needed to be. And honestly, part of that was, you know, people built along the, the banks of the river. And so you're going to end up flooding homes, trying to get enough energy into the river. It's very difficult to get a, historic you know flow regime on the south fork of the snake at this point right it's a tailwater essentially it is a tailwater <laughs> it, it, it looks a lot more like that than it does than it would have naturally so yeah um yeah and, and you still get some high high flows occasionally but it's not near enough or often enough and in fact what turned out happening in that case is that the flows level we could get which was somewhere around twenty thousand cubic feet per second maybe 21 22 it was never up to the 24, 25,000 cubic feet per second it needed to be to actually move some substrate around in a, in a real way. And it actually helped the rainbow trout. So we scrapped that. You're right. That's science for you. That's You set some hypotheses, you try some things out, you do your, your research, and then you modify, you know, you're constantly modifying your knowledge base and, and working from that. And that's, that's just kind of the scientific process. And in that case, that didn't work. And, you know, the reality is the situation, the politics around it that's never going to work really. And so that now, now Idaho fishing game has, uh, they, they've been working on rainbow reds in the spring, removing rainbow trout. And that's highly controversial to be honest with you. Yeah, that's, that's right. Cause rainbows are rainbows get big. That's the thing about It's interesting because the, um, you know, Browns are these cool, right? They get big rainbow can get really big, but cutthroat don't really get that big. Right. Even if you have a lot of food, because they're just not that species, like what would be a, what would be a big, uh, Yellowstone cutthroat you might catch? Oh, well, I mean, I think it's probably different for different streams, right? But if you go into the the headwaters of Yellowstone Lake, I've caught 28 inches there. And in fact, one of the... You've caught how many? How big? 28-inch Yellowstone cutthroat trout. Oh, wow. So there are giant cutthroat. Oh, yeah. Okay, I was wrong. I'll take back my comment then. It sounds like then that's there are giant cutthroat. Yeah, I mean, in fact, if you caught a 20-incher on that trip, you were wondering what was wrong. Holy cow, this is cool. So are the Yellowstone, that this is amazing. So then they are, I mean, this is a species for sure that can get big. Oh, yeah. And in fact, one of the guides at Henry's Fork Angler caught a cutthroat on the lower Teton that was 28, 30, 30 inches. There's been, you can definitely see them up to 32 inches, but to catch like a 24 inch uh, cutthroat on the South Fork, entirely possible. But when you're fishing out there, I mean, you could be fishing on the South Fork and all of a sudden you're whatever, nymphing or doing whatever. And all of a sudden you don't know what it is. It could be a brown, a rainbow or a big cutthroat. Oh, most definitely. And actually my wife's family has, you know, they fished on the South Fork 
pre-Palisades Dam, right? They're from the homestead of that area. And they, you know, my, her grandfather just passed away, but he fished it since he was 10 years old. He was 99 years old when he passed away this year. Her dad's fished it for, you know, 50 some years now. And, and yeah, they just talk about when it was all cutthroat, just how amazing, you know, the size. And then they didn't know what they had then, right? There was nobody on the river and, and these huge fish. And, and so to hear those stories is, is pretty amazing. The one thing that makes unique, right, is that there's the Yellowstone where you can have a, a pretty cool dry fly fishery for YCT. And that's kind of the other cool thing about. Uh, oh, the Yellowstone. Yeah, the South Fork's kind of the same way. It's one of the, it's not like it's the only remaining dry fly fishery, but as far as a Yellowstone cutthroat trout dry fly fishery, it's one of the remaining places to be able to do that. So it's a pretty cool deal. And and of course, it's always nice to then throw some streamers and you can catch big cutthroat doing that, big browns. But one of the best days on the, honestly, one of the best days on the South Fork is when the riffles are going, PMDs are hatching, and you can catch, you know, 13 to 20 inch cutthroat on a riffle all afternoon long during the PMD hatch. That's a lot of fun. I mean, that's good stuff. That is cool. That's the interesting thing where we're coming in here because we're doing this Euro nymphing school, right? And it is mm-hmm. focused on Euro nymphing, but then there you go, right? I mean, you can nymph too, right? People, I mean, probably maybe if they get the opportunities, they're fishing dries, but nymphing sounds like it's pretty effective. Do you see many people nymph fishing out there? Oh yeah, most definitely, right? Sometimes it's the only game that's available to you, right? I, I guess I'm I'm pretty adaptive. I'll do whatever it takes, you know, between stream streamer fishing, dry fly fishing, and and nymphing. Do you have a? Uh, have you gotten into Euro? You got the Euro game going? <laughs> no, I mean it's it's kind of like why I don't play golf, and that's because I I don't have enough time to play all the different games. You know, it's like I'll admit my favorite fishing. I love I love a lot of it, right? And I've done saltwater fishing and everything else, but a day on a high mountain stream. Uh, where you you're catching 12, 13 inch fish on a dry fly. And then every once in a while, there's a 16 or 17 inch fish mixed in and you're all alone, you know, three, four, five miles in the back country. That's a perfect day of fishing for me. And so everything else kind of stems from that core. Yeah, that's good. Love that. Well, let's take it there because I think we jumped right into it, but I'd like to hear your background. You obviously do some fly fishing. Take us to like first, you know, how'd you get into fly fishing? And then let's take it into the Henry's Fork Foundation and all that. But how'd you start? Have you been doing this a while? Uh, you know, I grew up in eastern Colorado, farm kid there. And so pheasant hunting and things like that, but honestly not much water around if it didn't come from the Ogallala for, you know, out of the ground. And so we would take uh, occasional trips to the mountains and, you know, started to build the love of fishing through that or going to some of those you know, impoundments on the South Platte, Lake McConaughey and so forth, and, and doing stuff like walleye fishing and bass fishing. So started to build it that way, but it wasn't until I moved to Fort Collins, Colorado, from the very Eastern part of the state that, uh, in junior high. And I had a buddy and they had a cabin on the Coughlapuda river and, and he introduced me to fly fishing. And, you know, I still remember the, the day we rode our bikes up and caught some fish and, and we were you know, we called them Helgramites at that time, right? We were, we were swinging stonefly nymphs is what we were doing and catching some pretty decent brown trout, uh, you know, up to 15, 16 inches on the lower Koshlaputer. And that was, you know, one of the, but I just learned from him and we would fish ponds around Fort Collins. We'd get in our kick boats and, you know, float tubes and, and catch smallmouth bass and sunfish and bluegill and stuff. And that, but we would do it with spinning rods too. You know, we were, we were opportunists. We would do whatever we thought was going to work best that day. So that's how I started, started fishing. And then, you know, coming, uh, you know, had a career, uh, graduated from Colorado State University in wildlife biology, but I did a bunch of work there 
uh, through Kurt Fausch's uh, lab at Colorado State University, worked on a PhD project, and I looked at Colorado uh, cutthroat versus brook trout competition. And so I led a field through there for a PhD student at, at CSU and, and spent a lot of time in, on backcountry creeks, setting up wares and doing research and uh, moved on to other things, you know, running a bison ranch, working for Wyoming Game and Fish Department, uh, but spent most of my career in the nonprofit world. And so uh, came from, we worked a little bit for Pheasants Forever, spent seven years with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, but now I've been here as the executive director at the, the Henry's Fork Foundation for, well, in my 12th year, I guess. Wow. 12, yeah. You got a nice, that's pretty awesome. sounds like you've done a little bit of everything. <laughs> yeah, I guess a, a little <laughs> bit of breadth to the background and, and I'll admit, uh, you know, I mean, this job almost forces you to become more serious about your fly fishing. Although I try to never get too, too serious, but uh, definitely spent, you know, spent a lot of time now and, and have been fortunate through, you know, donor trips and building relationships with people that go to Chile and Argentina and Cuba and Alaska and do things I probably would have never done without being in this world. So that's pretty cool. That's one of the the benefits, right. Of the fact that that is part of it. Yeah. I mean, you're the person making connections and uh, some of the best ways to make connections is to get out on the water with these people and chat and do some trips. And I saw that you got uh I remember on your website somewhere where you're doing a couple of hosted trips coming up here. What do you guys have going? Is that something you're doing this year? Yeah, I'll admit you, you caught me off guard there on that one. I don't have anything myself coming up. So if it's not my trip and it's some other staff member handling it, I don't pay quite as much. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you right now, it's uh, this might be old and save the, the, I don't know if these are older things, but it looks like, no, these are 23. So uh, Las Pampas Lodge and, uh, and Elk River, British Columbia. I don't know either of those. Actually, I've heard of them, but where is the... Sounds like that's pretty cool. Where is Las Pampas, Argentina? Yeah, Las Pampas is down Rio Pico, so it's south of. Oh yeah, Rio Pico. Yeah, and the owner of that lodge, right? This is just how these things happen. Uh, became a great friend of the foundation. I think we actually have we put that trip on hold till next year, just because sometimes it's hard to get enough people to go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's a tough trip. Yeah, sixty three hundred bucks. I mean, and that sounds like a deal for that going way down there. Yeah. And I did it last year with a, a big group of donors and it was fantastic. It's a great place. And even in a drought year, it was still fantastic. But yeah, I mean, that's those kinds of trips and building relationships that way. I mean, we've tripled our budget since I arrived in 2011. And a big part of that, of course, it's really good work, right? And, and, and mission accomplishment, and those things are happening, but it's building relationships with people and introducing them to our work and inviting them to invest in then because you have that relationship and they see you know what you're doing they want to invest in it and so trip yeah sometimes those trips go really well as far as being able to get them sold and they're easy and other times it's a struggle and so we work with the shops on that so we just push that one back a year um but it's a great place down there i will say for myself you know the travel like that is that many hours of travel gets tough right it's, it's just <laughs> from ashton idaho it's you know 40 hours door to door there Oh, right. Yeah. What do you have to do from Ashton? You fly over. What's your connect? Well, yeah. Break us down real quick. What was your trip like? Where did you fly from Ashton? Oh, so yeah. You know, it's, it's drive, drive to Idaho Falls. Sometimes it's Bozeman. Sometimes it's Salt Lake. Depends on what the flights look like. Right. And then into somewhere like Dallas or Houston, then into to Buenos Aires, which, you know, you're flying all night to get there. And I heard now that they're actually going to start doing the regional flights out of Buenos Aires to the rest of the country. But previously you had to 
get a shuttle to the other airport. And I'm forgetting the names of the airport off. And so you're, you're trying to get across town and, and match up schedules. And sometimes you have to stay over overnight in BA. And then you fly another two, three hours, you know, from Buenos Aires, maybe four hours to where you're going. And then you drive another four hours. <laughs> See, this is a crazy thing about me. This is where I think I'm the perfect person for this because I talk to people that are just like, they say, they're like, oh man, it's terrible. But I actually love that. You know what I mean? Like that just sounds like fun to me. For some reason, I love going into the airports and just the random stuff because, you know, you're out there, you're just stopping in for like a half a day in some random town. And I don't know. I think I'm weird that way. Do you think most people probably like don't like that part of it? You know, I don't know. The funny thing is, you know, for example, I headed out on a northeastern Montana pheasant hunting trip in December and I love driving myself. I can drive myself. I just did 16 hours back from from Oregon driving myself, right? Damn. Straight? Yeah, that is no bother to me, really. It's tiring, of course, but I don't mind that at all. Airports wreck me, right? And <laughs> and all those transfers and, and probably I'm not a fluent Spanish speaker. So I, you know, there's a little stress involved with that too. And and it, yeah, yeah. until I get there, I have that 40 hours is a bit, uh, bit tough for me. So, and I don't sleep well on airplanes. That's probably part of it. If I slept better on airplanes, that would help. Yeah, well, the secret for me is I, I download a bunch of podcast episodes and I just listen to podcasts. <laughs> Perfect. So there Perfect. you go. Um, well, let's circle back around. This has been a good uh, a good little tangent. So looking back at what you guys have going, we're not going to be able to dig into everything, but you know, give us a couple of highlights. Do you want to talk more about the South Fork Initiative or what would you, if you want to leave somebody with a couple of things that we haven't covered here, what else would you tell us today? Yeah, it, you know, I just say the South Fork Initiative is awesome, but it's kind of only one part uh, of what we do in a small part. Yeah. The focus, and this is, is really, you know, I'm kind of mentioned Island park reservoir. That's what we focus on. So we have developed a precision management program that we work with the irrigators on. And since 2018, we've conserved about 25,000 acre feet a year, which a, an acre foot is a football field with about a foot of water. Oh, wow. The whole reservoir is about 135,000 acre feet. So 25,000 acre feet in that reservoir is pretty important. It's pretty substantial. And what that is, is it's carryover. We get to the end of the season and versus what would have normally been in there based on past records, you know, prior to 2017, that's the amount of water we've been able to work with our partners and keep in the reservoir. And that just leads to a whole host of good things, a better winter flow because you have a, a, a smaller hole to fill in the reservoir all winter long. And that winter fill uh, and flow leads to uh, increased you know, fish population. It leads to better outcomes for water quality just because you kind of have that deeper, more stable reservoir. I mean, there's a lot of technical stuff that goes into a lot, but, but that program is what right now is kind of what we're focused on, uh, most proud of. There's all kinds of things going on around that, right? Like the precision management, we've done a bunch of research on the lower Henry's Fork and looking at how to optimize flows there to protect not only the lower Henry's Fork, but protect Island Park Reservoir and the ranch. That was a whole PhD project. We've also done a PhD project above Island Park Reservoir uh, coming from Big Springs, which is the, the large spring that supplies most of the water to the Henry's Fork coming off the that Yellowstone country. You know, just this amazing amount of water, you know, pumping out of the ground every day, all day long. And so that stretch from there to the reservoir. And it, it actually, we've actually now shown through that PhD work that keeping Island Park Reservoir more full helps that fishery as well. So there's these multiple benefits by keeping more water in, in Island Park Reservoir. And, and honestly, the 
the people that are managing water in the state of Idaho are taking notes, like how do we take some of those precision management and predictive models and how do we use those to the benefit of everyone here across Southern Idaho? So we're starting to see that happen a bit. That being said, you know, so there, here's this great work, right? 25,000 acre feet a year, year after year, we're only paying, you know, if you look at our entire budget, that's about $2.5 million annually. So we're paying about $100 an acre foot for this conserved water. You know, we're not leasing it. We're not buying it. In fact, in Idaho, we don't even have the legal opportunity to do that. But if you went to Colorado or California where they do have the legal opportunity to do that, it would cost between one and $3,000 annually to lease or buy that water. So we're doing it way cheaper just through, you know, kind of science and, and collaboration and trust, right? Um, which is pretty cool to me. That's it doesn't mean it's not without its pitfalls, but it's it's a pretty cool deal. And so, and if you, I mean, you've heard about the Colorado River system, right? We've all seen that in the news with Lake Powell and Lake Mead. And if the percentages were the same down there for those reservoirs, you know, they're looking at evaporative losses of, you know, a million acre feet or right. Our program could cover that first evaporative loss for them if they, you know, if they ever got to the point where they could do something similar on that scale, but similar percentages. And so you look at it that way, you're like, oh, that is pretty impactful. Um, what we're doing here percentage-wise is a lot of water. That being said, if you look at back through the wa- all the water history, which we do all the time, right? We're we're just like farmers in the fact that we're always looking at water history and water flows and the weather and the, the weather today, right? And and we can't always match up. For the angler, for our member, their experience on a river, on this river, the South Fork, on a given day or even a given week, because sometimes things just work against you, right? It's just the weather, the heat, the wind. You know, this spring was super cold after a really light. Right. Lots of snow, right? We didn't know we were 28, 29% down on our our snowpack. So if you think of, we think here as, you know, average snowpack, 100%. Snowpack, but that's 100% in that case is still kind of like it's average, which averages a C. And so by the time you go, you know, you're way into the F range by the time you're 28% down from that. Now, if you can get up to, you know, 120% of average, now, okay, now you're in that A range as far as a snowpack. And uh, we just haven't, we haven't been there much. Uh, in fact, in the last 20 years, we're in a long term drought. There's only been a couple years that would get into that B to A range. Uh, a few C years and a whole bunch of D and F years, as far as you know, looking at historical averages when it comes to you know watershed yield out of the Henry's Fork, and so we're just. And then in July 2020, a, a you know an intermediate drought started, and this last uh, you know snowpack year kind of finished that off. Now we did get some rain this summer, which which helped take the edge off of it a little bit and alleviate. You know that was June, and then again in the fall we got some moisture, but we went from this cold spring, which suppressed insect hatches and plant growth in the river and all of these processes to kind of July 1st, the, the light switch flipped. And then we ended up with two and a half months of the hottest, driest weather we've ever had. And then you go back into, you know, the, it snowed. In fact, I just wrote all this for my piece in the annual report. It snowed here in Ashton. And on November 4th, my grass was covered and I haven't seen the grass since. Oh, and wow. so, you know, it's just this yo-yo. And I think yeah. that's the, that's the change, right? The, the climate change thing, if you talk about it here, even the farmers will say, and they'll be like, yeah, I just can't depend on things the way I used to. The variability is so much greater. How do you guys do that with your thing? How do you guys, you know, as you look at that, because obviously there's some some climate change, some things going on. When you look at it, it sounds like you got a successful program. Do you look ahead and think, well, 
this is potentially where we're going? I mean, how do you predict that stuff and what you're doing? How do you change your water work you're doing? We definitely look into the future and look at strategies into the future. And in fact, it'll frustrate our membership sometimes because there's things that we're working on like sediment mobilization in Island Park Reservoir. And that, right, if I went into that right now, I'd be going deeply into the weeds. It is having an impact. It's something that kind of with an aging reservoir is developing. Well, the, the solutions to that are really complex and they take a lot of partners and you can't, I can't just come like openly talk about everything we're doing. All I can say is, hey, we're working on that. We've got some stuff in process and there has to be a little bit of trust and belief that, yeah, we're truly doing these things, but it doesn't help that person out on the river that day that, now he's got turbid water and he wanted to dry fly fish on the ranch. And now the fish aren't rising because the hatches have been suppressed because it's been dry for 20 years and there's turbidity and, you know, these, these things that are they're impacting it. And it's a tough story to tell that, Hey, we're the Henry's fork foundation. We're doing this great work. What we're doing right now is making this situation way better than it would be. You know, we can show you how bad it'd be, but it's hard to even imagine how bad it'd be if we weren't doing what we're doing, right. you know, putting more winter flow in a little less summer, summer flow that, you know, that actually helps with kind of fishing conditions, um, you know, a thousand more fish in the river than there would have been, but yeah, the population's still lower than it was three or four years ago, because we don't have the winter flows that we had then, um, we're making an impact, but it's in, all it's doing is, is making a really bad situation, just bad. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's hard to look at it too, because you, you know, you look at it and people want quick changes, you know, and some of this stuff is, it's a longer period, right? Some of this is going to take years and years to see, and especially with climate change, you know, who knows how long this is going to go on. And uh, yeah, I think it's tough because people want quick wins, but you can't always get quick wins, right? You got to like convince them that, Hey, this might take our lifetime to get there. Right. So do you guys see that as kind of a education you have to talk about a little bit? Oh yeah. Communication is a essential for us. It's tough to hit the right uh, notes on that all the time. Uh, we're continually working to get better, but yeah, that is a difficult concept there. And, you know, and we, someone will bring us an idea, well, let's dredge Island park reservoir and that'll take care of all the sediment issue. Okay. I, I see what you're saying, but as soon as you start to look at it, like the environmental processes and even some of our like other partner organizations would be like, no, we're never doing that because the impacts while it's being done will be so, you know, catastrophic. And then you throw on, I mean, now we've just for due diligence, right. We've kind of tracked that out. And if you're talking 500 million to $750 million, including the 10 years of NEPA and everything that'd have to be done, the, the NEPA being the National Environmental Policy Act, you know, it's just, that's not really an option. It seems like, oh, that's this is so simple. We just suck this stuff out. And it turns out it's not a, a viable option and and it's actually not a cost effective. If I had $750 million, you know, to work on this problem, I'm not sure that would still be the thing I would do. There's some other really impactful things that could be done. It's amazing. Yeah. So we're working on other, you know, strategies that, but they're just going to take, all of them take time. They are not, these are not simple things. They're big projects and they're going to take a lot of groundwork to get put in place. And it's that part of, part of us continually learning, right? We, uh, when the reservoir was a younger reservoir and the dynamics in the reservoir were different and water management was different, we weren't seeing some of these sediment events the same. And so, you know, you, it's kind of the, we're, we're making a lot of steps forward, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to be faced with new challenges as we make those steps forward. And we're, we're definitely yeah, struggling with that. And, but, but I think we've got the right thoughts. It's just, we'll need our members to stick with us, right? You got to have that support. And I think we can, we can eventually get there. Yeah. 
hopefully it starts to snow a whole bunch more though in coming years that would make that would take the pressure off just a little bit <laughs> oh right right exactly more so yeah that's the one thing we don't know you know it's amazing because we definitely have no idea i mean you could do all your predictions but at the end of the day we don't totally know and I think, like you said, the cooling is, and that's why, you know, we love doing these because it is all about the local groups. I feel like, you know, when you talk to some of these companies and supporters, they always say like, you know, I always ask them like, how can we do this? You know, what's the, what can we do? And they always say support the local groups because you guys are the ones on the ground that have your finger on the pulse. And if we can support you, then there's a better chance that we're going to have not only better fishing, but better everything. Right. And that's, that's kind of what it comes down to. Um, Give us a heads up on everybody listening here right now that are still hanging in there on this. Um, where would we send them if they want to, uh, like, you know, find out more, have an impact, maybe contribute to what you have going? What would you tell them? Yeah, I would definitely get on our website, that www.henrysfork.org. You can look at reports. You can look at published papers. Uh, you can donate on there. And we'd love to have you donate and have, uh, you know, a growing membership will make us a stronger organization as we as we work on all these issues, if we can say we have 3,000 members instead of 2,300, uh, that's more powerful as we as we talk to our partners and the people we're working with. So yeah, we would love to have you at any level and and even if it's just getting on there and learning about what we're doing. But yeah, you can find us on there and that has all the links to Instagram, Facebook, and other places to, to set up with us and be able to get constant information. Oh, good. Good. And do you guys have like an email list people could sign up? Uh, yes. There's in fact, yeah, if you sign up for a membership, you get on that. And then we also have Dr. Rob Van Kirk here, one of the the West's you know foremost ecological modelers, and he does a daily water report. Which even if you're not like from this area, it's just kind of cool to see uh, and understand what's going on in the region based on his his water report. So um, you can definitely get on that list too by contacting him via his email. So there you go. Yeah, this is perfect. I'm looking at it now. It looks like it's all. Set up perfectly. You got the different uh, memberships from individual to family to Riverkeep. It's all totally reasonable and all the way up to if you want to be a, a life member or a, the Green Drake Society. That's pretty cool. You uh, receive the, uh, you got the G Loomis on board. This is awesome. So um, cool. Why well, anglers are into, you know, into gear. And so we got to have some incentives with some of those. those. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, the interesting thing is as we speak, right, this is why we connected. We're doing the same thing here, but we're doing a little bit of a, a giveaway promotion to not only you know, build some buzz for kind of this cool trip, but also to support like what we have going here, you know, now with you guys. So I think it all comes around, you know, for me, it's about kind of supporting the local groups as well. So cool. Well, we'll do that. We'll send everybody out to, uh, to Henry's fork.org and, uh, yeah, Brandon, definitely going to be excited to keep in touch with you and follow you guys on your newsletter and, uh, and let everybody know what's going on. So appreciate all your time today. I appreciate your time. And, and when you guys come out, I'd love to have dinner with you or something, uh, hook up when you're, yeah. when you're out this direction. Love to meet you face to face. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We'll look you up, but, uh, until then, uh, have a good rest of the, uh, I guess, what are we at now? We're in the winter time. So we're going to be coming out. <laughs> when does that come out? Give me the, the heads up. When do you, it almost feels like with climate change, like we talked is different, but do you feel like there is a good break in winter where you're like, okay, it's going to be warm then? <laughs> or how's that look? Are you, you don't know. When you live in Ashton and Island park, even though there is climate change you know we, we're not seeing it the same way right like right now i'm i'm just putting my head down and trying to get through till april 1st and maybe we'll start to feel a little relief then so right so you don't know yeah it could snow like five feet tomorrow or next week well right now that's not the forecast we we would take that honestly just for the water component yeah we're we would take it awesome all right brandon we'll talk to you soon okay thank you dave so there it is 
coming off the river, had an amazing day, had some sunshine. It was just one of those epic trips. Parking the boat, coming back, and we're going to have a nice adult beverage. And uh, we're back at the cabin. Maybe get a campfire going. This is this is a good ride. I appreciate uh, Brandon for uh, shedding some light on all the good work they have going. This is really what keeps all this great fishing going, the work here. And uh, and if you want to check out some of the show notes, wetflyswing.com slash 414. 414. Uh, you can find some of the stuff we talked about today, including some videos, some links to past episodes, and all the good stuff. Quick listener shout out before we get out of here. Joe Sindorf. Joe reached out to me on email. He fishes the tributary rivers of Lake Michigan. And we talked a little bit about Joe's interested in uh, getting kind of more of a switch rod. We specifically talked about kind of Echo, Lampson. Shout out to Nick at Lampson and, and Echo as well. And you can't go wrong with either of those brands, uh, top of the game for sure. And so hopefully, Joe, you picked up a rod. Uh, excited for that. We also have a couple of great episodes we did uh, with Jeff Liske. If you want to find out some of the stuff he uses in some of the same rivers, obviously, he's down a little bit south of you. Uh, but shout out all around. Uh, thanks, Joe. If you want to get a shout out on this podcast, you can send me an email anytime, dave at wetflyswing.com. And uh, I'll put together an episode for you, and I'll give you a shout-out here on this podcast. If we haven't connected yet, this is the time right now. Send me an email or connect with me on social. All right, I'm going to leave you with a little shout-out to this trip. If you haven't had a chance to sign up, this is super easy. All The only thing I need is an email, a name, and you're entered to win this trip. It's about $6,000 worth of stuff. This is not only a trip we're giving away, but we're giving away... Uh, a bunch of products. We're giving away a Shadow X Euro Nipping Rod. We're giving away a Lamps and Reel. We're giving away another rod. Uh, we're giving away uh, waders. We got, you name it, this thing is loaded. And we got some great brands uh, on board. So if you want to get a chance, real easy, go to wetflyswing.com slash giveaway right now. Enter to win. And, uh, and this is only going to be open for less than a week. So we're going to be open this thing quick. And like I said, if you want to jump in and just get one of the six slots, if they're still available right now, uh, you can check in Dave at WetflySwing. Send me an email and just say, hey, in the subject line, interested in the Euro nymphing trip, uh, interested in catching big fish on the South Fork of the Snake, uh, browns, rainbows. Uh, this is right at the back door of Yellowstone National Park. Uh, this is, uh, we, we're doing another one. This is like as big as it gets as far as, uh, as, far as I'm concerned. And, uh, and that's our goal is to get the best guides in the country, go to the best locations in the country, put together the best schools. So you come away with uh, some techniques that are going to last uh, a lifetime in your home water. And so uh, shout out to Pete Erickson. He's helping me put this, uh, this amazing trip together. And I am not going to bug you uh, much longer on this, but just want to say, uh, do it right now. And, uh, and I hope to see you on the water. All right. Well, I hope you're having a good afternoon. I hope you are having a good evening. And I hope wherever you are in the world that you are having a morning if it's morning. And I'm glad you came with me on this one to join me on this journey. And I'm excited to check in with you on the next episode. We got another big one come this week. Some topics you probably haven't been thinking about. And a reel, I know for sure, a reel you likely have never seen in your life that is probably the most unique thing that you'll see all year. Check in uh, this week on our next episode and find out what I'm talking about. We're going into some more product stuff. And I know you love the new and unique products. So we got it coming tomorrow. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. 
For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.